Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about sexual fetishes and where they come from. People can develop fetishes for virtually anything. Most commonly, we hear about things like feet, shoes, boots, underwear, or lingerie, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. People have developed fetishes for cars, medical devices, every body fluid you can think of, even insect bites. So how do all of these fetishes develop in the first place? Are some people more likely to develop them than others? And what role does porn play in all of this? We're going to be answering these questions and more. My guest today is Dr. Jim Faust, a researcher in behavioral neuroscience in the Department of Psychology and Life Sciences at Charles University in Prague and with the Czech National Institute of Mental Health. He has conducted work on sexual arousal, desire, and pleasure in rats and humans alike, and his work has earned widespread media and scientific attention. Some of his research has even formed the basis for new pharmacotherapies for sexual disorders. This is going to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Venus, host of the Venus Cuckoldress podcast and founder of Venus Connections. This message is for all of the beautiful, single, sex-positive women listening to this episode. What if I told you you could have a loving, adoring, and faithful partner and have exciting and thrilling encounters with others. But he loves it that way. In fact, you both love it that way. This kind of relationship is all about celebrating you. You can have that. You can have it all. You can learn more at venusconnections.com. That's venusconnections.com. It's matchmaking for loving, cuckolding relationships. Hi, Jim, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hey, Justin. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I remember the first time I ever saw you give a talk at a conference, and it was on what animal studies can teach us about the development of fetishes in humans. And it was so incredibly interesting. <laughs> and ever since then, I've been citing your work all over the place. So I'm thrilled to have a chance to dig into it with you today. Thanks a lot. But before we get into that, can you please tell us a little bit about how you got into the world of sex research in the first place? What did your journey look like? Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, I don't know when it actually started because I got suspended from school in grade three for writing the word sex on my notebook. I'd always <laughs> been interested in trying to understand, you know, the process of making babies. So reproduction was something that was very, uh, was a big interest to me when I was young. It was also the case that I tried to understand why people thought, pe you know, gay people, straight people, lesbians, why everybody was different. Like, why, why would sex make people different? People were still people. And I remember having an argument about this in grade five with other grade fives who thought, oh, well, you know, people are different. People are different. Why? We're people. So, it, like, I never understood anything until I had my first orgasm. And to be quite blunt, that uh, that wow moment was, you know, after trying to masturbate and trying to get, that moment was a big thing. And I tried to figure out why did it feel so good? Like, why had my body never done this before? You know, I got erections and I tried to, play, you know, rub them against things and, you know, did the two pillow thing and everything. But it's like <laughs> nothing had come of that, excuse the pun, before <laughs> that moment. That moment was like, holy dude, why did that happen? Like, what did my body just do? It, it, was a, it was a pleasure that I'd never experienced before. And I tried to figure it out. And I was, you know, I was young. I was 13. And there was nothing. I mean, I went to the library and, you know, even managed to sneak my way into the adult section, looked up Masters and Johnson, and they said, oh, it's, it's a function of the brain. Well, that's all well and good. Well, function, what function of the brain? Like, why did it feel so good? I had no idea. 
And it was, I mean, that's been driving me up to this day. Why does sex feel good? You know, tell us what you want. Yes, but what we want is pleasure. What we want is control. What we want is, you know, the stuff that makes us be able to say, yes, I am real. This is me. This is how I feel. And how understanding how that works in the brain has been like the constant driver of everything I've done ever since, literally. So the short version, you had an orgasm and you wanted to learn more. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I love that. I've never heard that story before. You know, I asked this of all of my guests and everybody has a different journey. But, you know, I can relate to what you said in some ways about wanting to really understand that. I mean, I can remember the first time I had an orgasm. Actually, the first time I was on the brink of having an orgasm, I actually pulled back and stopped because I didn't know what yeah. was happening to my body. And it was actually kind of a scary experience because I didn't know what would happen if I continued. Let go. You know? yep. So, yep. you know, it, and I think that's also really interesting to think about from the standpoint of, say, sex education, because I had my first orgasm well before I ever had any sex ed. And I didn't know, didn't understand what was happening to my body. And, you know, I think that's part of the importance of talking to people about your bodies and what happens to them at, at you know, a relatively young age, because different people go through puberty at different points in time. Yep. Yep. But not everybody goes on to become a sex researcher. <laughs> That's true. I mean, the very fact that nothing was known about orgasm, I mean, something we do with statistical regularity as a species, nothing is, we know more about swallowing than we knew about orgasm. That made no sense to me whatsoever. And I would talk about this with people. They'd be like, Whoa, what are you talking about? And so you realize, yeah, my teacher in grade three got all upset and flustered about the word sex. Students and adults got all upset and flustered about the word orgasm. There's something powerful about sex that everybody wants and everybody fears. That is so true and so well put. And it also is surprising still how little we know about sex and how reluctant so many people are to talk about it. But thank you for sharing all of that. What I want to dive into now is sexual fetishes. So I previously did an episode of the show with Dr. Richard Sprott, that was episode 44, where we discussed what fetishes are and how they overlap with kink and BDSM. And for purposes of clarity, Richard defined fetishes for us as these enduring fascinations people have with specific sensory stimuli, such as specific body parts or inanimate objects. So a fetish object is something that heightens arousal for an individual, but what people find arousing about that object can vary. So sometimes it's the sight, the taste, the smell, the sound, or even the feel of the object, or some combination of all of those things. So for example, someone with a foot fetish might be aroused by looking at or touching feet. Other people might be aroused by sniffing or licking them. And so two people can have a fetish for the same object, but the way they engage with that object might be very different. So with that as our backdrop, let's talk about where these fetishes come from. Now, Jim, let's start with your research on rats, where you essentially condition them in a way to have a clothing fetish of sorts. Mm -hmm. So please tell us a little bit about that study with male rats who were wearing these adorable little tiny jackets. <laughs> what did you do and what did you find? So this was actually quite accidental. I mean, I'd been interested in trying to understand, you know, where fetishes come from. I'd done a lot of work on conditioning of odors, right? And you, you might even say that that would figure into the realm of fetishes, since a neutral odor paired with sexual reward then becomes a preferred thing. I mean, rats will, you know, pick up gauze with that odor, like say it's almond or lemon. They'll pick it up and rub it all over themselves and do all sorts of things that they wouldn't do if it wasn't paired with a sexual reward outcome. And of course, for male rats, that's going to be ejaculation, their version of an orgasm. For female rats, it's going to be their version of an orgasm, which I can provide by uh, with a little number four camel hair paintbrush, which I massage their clitoris with under the proper, you know, sort of delayed control that the female feels she has with regard to it. They actually show vocalizations that are indicative of having a rat version of an orgasm, just like the males do. So if we do that, we can pair the odor and females will actually prefer males that wear that odor. Males will prefer females that wear that odor, which of course is not what rats should do. They're 
allegedly promiscuous, and yet a very simple Pavlovian conditioning procedure can make them choose a familiar partner bearing that familiar cue, which I think gets at some, you know, if we, we try to decompose what a fetish actually is, as you mentioned, and as Spot mentioned, it's something that increases arousal. So anything you associate with the arousal that's activating your attention toward the reward that that arousal is actually moving you toward, that's going to come to activate your mesolimbic dopamine and activate all the things you need to do. In terms of the, the somatosensory fetish, right, this is quite accidental. I had rats that were used as studs for female choice paradigm. The problem with males is they're very cooperative. Male rats are wonderfully cooperative. They actually respect females when the females say no. So calling a human a rat is, you know, who isn't respecting that is kind of a misnomer to the rat. So these males had always worn these like rodent tethering jackets, right? Because if they don't, they'll actually crawl all over each other. So if one has the odor and the other one doesn't, soon they both have the odor. It's kind of like being in an obnoxious uh elevator where somebody is wearing way too much cologne and you kind of spend the rest of your day going, ah, damn, I touched that. (laughs) So it's a very similar kind of thing. So we had to tether the animals to keep them kind of in at opposite ends of this open field so that the female could actually make a free choice. So one of my other students needed some male studs. I said, oh, use those males. They're really good. And she did and they wouldn't copulate. I had no idea why. I thought, oh, well, maybe the females, maybe our estradiol is gone. We need to like remake up the estradiol and progesterone, which we did. Still didn't work. So then I thought, oh, well, you know, they've never been in these new chambers before. Maybe just pre-expose them to the chambers so they're not fearful. Did that, didn't work. So then I was right. this is a literal story. I was riding home on my bike at a major intersection in Montreal and the epiphany happened, you know, it kind of always happens at a bloody intersection. I almost got hit by a car. I turned my bike around. It's like the jacket, the jacket, the bloody jacket. They had never not worn the jacket. Like their first experiences were in these open fields with these jackets on. Right. And the females, of course, do horrible things. They run around. The male's like at the end of his tether grabbing at this jacket at the female and of course the jacket is holding them back they don't know that it's really attached to a spring tether so oh my god so we put the jackets on them and they copulated beautifully <laughs> okay so then we had to do a real study so we had the animals trained with the jackets on some trains with the jackets off you know, equal numbers and then on a final test they either had jacket on or jacket off jacket on or jacket off in both groups and it turns out the ones who never had the jacket were wearing the jacket, they're fine. If they weren't wearing the jacket, they're fine. The ones who had the jacket during training and had the jacket on were equally fine. But the ones who actually had been trained with the jacket and now had the jacket off were not only not fine, they didn't copulate at all. So then we thought, okay, this is really interesting. So the jacket is associated with these first experiences of sexual arousal and, of course, ejaculation, sexual reward. So we're thinking, okay, can we make the jacket mean no? So we paired the jacket in a second test with females that were not in heat. So the males, you know, they try to mount them and the females beat them up. So they learn that having the jacket on means no and having the jacket off means yes, right? And in this case, we did it again, the final test with jacket on, jacket off. The ones who had the jacket on, even though they're now being given sexually receptive females on this final test, didn't copulate with them. In fact, they acted as if we'd given them like an SSRI. So they were had a big delay of mounting, a big delay of intermitting. None of them ejaculated, right? So it means that they're, you know, having the jacket on now meant no, and no means your arousal has to go down. You have to actively inhibit, right? Whereas in the other case, not having the jacket on was like, oh yeah, baby, and off <laughs> they went, right? Because now they had that association. So you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, humans are different from animals and conditioning really doesn't occur. But condition, they say that because when you get to a laboratory in a university, your, your sexual preferences have already been conditioned. It's these initial experiences that tend to be the big things, right? So I think that, I think that that's really a take, one take-home message about, about the conditioning that occurs with this. Yeah, there may be other temperamental variables that we can discuss, but 
but it's these first experiences with high arousal and that high arousal leading to, you know, very big sexual reward, right? At orgasm or even just up in the arousal itself that now is starting to crystallize what you find attractive. And you know that because when somebody doesn't have that particular fetish object or you're not with that fetish object, nah, the arousal is kind of nothing. Yeah, that is so fascinating. <laughs> I don't think I knew that whole backstory where it was this accidental thing that you found. And I'm so glad that you then went and did the follow-up to show that that is what actually happens. So you did this, you did these studies with male rats, but you've also done studies with female rats showing that they can also, in a way, develop fetishes for, I believe you did some of the studies with jackets with the female rats as well. So this works in a similar way across sexes in, in rodents? It, males are much more susceptible to it than females. We have some females who showed that who, and showed beautiful conditioning and others who didn't at all. So I think there's a lot more variability in females than there is in males. And I think mm -hmm. that may have to do with, you know, I'll call it androgen sculpting, especially at puberty, which really kind of sculpts out a lot of our you know, a lot of our ability perhaps to be more fluid in our choices, right? And that doesn't seem to do that with with women in the same way or with females in the same way. So, you know, it would be very interesting, for example, to actually look, you know, and, and do subsequent studies, which I intend to do now that, now that I have a new lab, to do subsequent studies to actually look and see what the androgen activity or the androgenization of the females that do show these uh, pattern in terms of conditioning uh, relative to ones that don't, mm -hmm. right? And, and whether I could activate this whole thing with testosterone at puberty in these mm -hmm. females. Now, you said initially that you were studying conditioning related to odors, and you talked about some of the neutral odors that you looked at, like the almond scent and, and so forth. But you've also done work looking at very aversive scents. So in some of your research, you literally <laughs> had female rats that were scented or unscented with something called cadaverine, which is basically the smell of death. You know, it is a right. scent that is produced from decaying flesh. So were you also able to condition male rats to prefer females who were covered in that really aversive smell? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I guess earth boys are easy. I don't know. I mean, it, we're, it's like, we will, yes. In fact, some of the males actually got very, very fast conditioning to that, to that scent as long as, again, it was paired with uh, a sexual reward, like ejaculation. So they ejaculated with dead-smelling females, right? Now, the dead-smelling females weren't, you know, I didn't anesthetize them so they're lying there looking dead. In fact, they won't copulate with anesthetized females because they need to get kicked in the face and chase the females and do all the things they need to do that really increases their arousal. But as long as you do that, you place that odor, they come to prefer it. Mm -hmm. And you, so essentially you've taken an aversive, unconditioned stimulus and turned it into a appetitive conditioned stimulus, essentially. And in doing that, you're not doing anything that's really that strange. Feeding researchers, for example, Paul Rosen, for example, the University of Pennsylvania, did studies back in the 70s showing that babies worldwide do not like beer. Right. If you drop beer on their tongues, little droplets of beer, they they show rejection responses. They start to cry. I mean, beer is bitter. Bitter is poison. And your brain kind of knows that unconditionally and instinctually. But, they're, you know, the German ones are going to grow up to love beer. The Czech ones are going to grow up to love beer. The Chinese ones are going to grow up to love beer. It, it, it doesn't matter which culture you're in. These babies are going to grow up to love beer. So what changes? How does an aversive thing become then associated with alcohol-related reward to then produce an effect that makes you now prefer that flavor, right? Mm -hmm. Smokers have the same thing, right? You take that first drag of a cigarette, it tastes disgusting. But subsequently, you know, after enough conditioning trials, you're going to have your brand that you like, that you prefer that flavor over other flavors. So pairing it with sexual rewards is no different. And the way you're activating, you know, the mesolimbic dopamine system to come to now show a preference for these, you know, aversive things 
is really no different from how they work in these other in these other conditioning paradigms. So, but yeah, they will they would not only come to associate that with the, with the female and then come to prefer females that smell dead. <laughs> but when I put a when I put a wooden dowel in their home cage, that's now covered in cadaverin, right? The males in the control group would bury it. And I even tried to, you know, see what, okay, well, I'm going to just put the, you know, put this dowel in there every day in their home cage and see if they just habituate to it. Cause maybe it's a habituation kind of phenomenon. Nope. Nope. They don't habituate to this. They bury that prod. If there's particulate mass in their home cage. They just like bury it because rats bury their dead. Not the ones in the conditioning group, the experimental group, not only did none of them bury it, but they picked it up and they chewed on it, right? As if I'd smeared it with chocolate or, you know, strawberry, something they really like. Now that's crazy, right? But really what it, but it isn't so crazy if you think about how the brain must be organized for things like Pavlovian conditioning and stimulus-stimulus associations. Yeah, that is so fascinating. And I think it helps us to explain how, say, people could develop fetishes for things that other people might look at and think would be disgusting. But if it's being conditioned, you know, through this reward process that we're talking about, then it makes sense how you can come to develop a fetish for virtually anything, regardless of, you know, whether you might have perceived it as disgusting at one point or not. And then, of course, related to that, something that might also open the door to developing some of these fetishes in, in humans is that we know when people are sexually aroused that their disgust response tends to go down. That might That's open correct. the door to trying something you wouldn't otherwise do. And then through that process of conditioning, you can come to learn an association with it or come to derive pleasure from it. So that is absolutely true. So you've done all of this research in rats. Have you done any work on humans that can <laughs> <laughs> speak to this as well? You know, it would be great if we could. And to do that, we would really have to get to their initial sexual experiences. Mm -hmm. Right. And so really focus on that. You know, when did you go through puberty? When did you have your first orgasm? When did you, was there were things associated with your first orgasm? I mean, the only person that I know who's actually written extensively and included that information, unfortunately, is Richard von Kraft Ebbing, right? In Psychopathia Sexualis, because he did, he took complete histories of these individuals, right? So noted that they had their first you know, erection, or they said they had their first erections when they were being spanked by the nanny with the, you know, chiffon apron. And, you know, the apron was like rubbing against their face. And, you know, they had their pants down, but their penis was right between her legs. So, you know, the penis is kind of doing this between her legs and she's kind of clenched her legs. So that's like even better. And they're getting spanked and the chiffon apron is rubbing against their. I mean, I remember reading that in one of <laughs> In, in one of his case histories, I was like, oh, my God, like his first experience at seven years old of having an erection. And he remembers this because he's not only getting spanked, his penis is feeling really good. And the chiffon aprons like we can't do a study like this. Like, mm -hmm. we can't, I mean, it's hard unless you are dealing with, you know, maybe a, an incarcerated population to do a study of individuals and have them recount yeah. their first experiences. Right. If they even remember. Right. Which is which is hard to say. But of course, to try to do a study on that, you know, give me your 13 year old and let me have his first sexual experience or her first sexual experience with fill in the blank. We're just not going to ever get there. Sounds unethical. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Now, in my research on sexual fantasies, it, you know, it, it, it aligns with what you've been talking about. So I asked people who took the survey for my book, tell me what you want to describe what sexual activities took place during their very first sexual experience. And then I've related that to what it is that they're fantasizing about now. And activities that took place during their first sexual experience, people fantasized about them with greater frequency in adulthood, which supports that idea and that path. And I've also heard anecdotally of similar stories. In fact, I just heard from somebody the other day who was talking about how their first erection that they can remember happened in a doctor's office when they were sitting on, you know, that paper that's on uh, the the table that the patients are sitting on. And yep. then like he can only get off like when he's having sex on like a sheet of paper, right? Because he needs like that 
crinkly sound and feel and other things, right? So it is so interesting how those early experiences can be so formative. And I think that helps to shed light on how some of those fetishes can be instilled at such a young age and carry through for the rest of your life. Well, especially when, you know, you have normal sex, which might be very vanilla for somebody who, you know, really had a, a, a big first experience, you know, and, you know, it's like, well, it just doesn't do it. But, oh, I sit on the crinkly paper. Well, because you're not doing it all the time, every day, 24-7, it's kind of, a, you know, now we not only go from the realm of Pavlovian conditioning, we go to the realm of operant conditioning, response reinforcer right. conditioning, right? And I mean, I know, you know, when we take conditioning courses in psychology, it's like so dry and everybody gets bored by it. I, I wish they would talk more about kind of sexual conditioning because it follows all the same rules and would probably be less boring to people. But think about it. If you're doing it on a variable ratio schedule of reinforcement, right? And it's a VR, whatever the hell that variable ratio is, you know, every one time out of 50, I have sex on the paper and it's way better, right? Our brains also think in terms of Bayesian, right? Kind of phenomenology. So it's like, yeah, now the paper really gets reinforced because every time I do it on the paper, wow, the orgasm is amazing. The hot, the arousal is amazing. I think about it. I fantasize about it beforehand, which just really, like, really gets that arousal up. Whereas the other times, eh. So you're learning to really make this, this evaluation where, oh, the few times I do it this way and it's naughty and I think about it and I want it and I, I pine after it and I crave it. And the rest of the time is, eh. Well, this is going to come to be preferred. Yeah, so true. And so we've been talking here about Pavlovian conditioning. And for people listening who took an intro psych course, you know, they, they know what you're talking about. But if not, you know, essentially what we're talking about here is this classic research where this guy, Pavlov, essentially conditioned dogs to salivate in response to the sound of a ringing of a bell, which he repeatedly paired with the presentation of meat powder. And if you present dogs with meat powder, it's going to make them salivate. If you just ring a bell, they're not going to salivate. But if you ring a bell and then present meat powder, you do this enough times, eventually just ringing the bell will make them salivate. And so there have actually been two studies I'm aware of that have looked at Pavlovian conditioning in relation to sexual fetishes. The first of these is one that I talk about in my textbook, The Psychology of Human Sexuality. It was this study by Rockman in the 1960s, and he brought young men, college-age men, into a lab. He hooked them up to devices to measure their genital arousal, and he showed them images of nude women and women's boots. And what he found was that the men were showing arousal in response to the nude women, but not to the images of the boots. But after he repeatedly paired presentation of nude women followed by boots, eventually the men started to show arousal in response to the boots alone. And then there was a follow-up to this study in the 1990s where the researchers were like, okay, well, so that worked for boots, but let's think of like the least arousing thing that we can think of, like just something totally random. And what they settled on was an image of a jar of pennies, right? You know, most people aren't <laughs> going to be turned on by looking at Lincoln on a US penny. I mean, some people might, and that's fine, no judgment. But, you know, for the vast majority of people, not going to be a turn on. So they went through this similar process and through conditioning principles, people started to show arousal in response to an image of a jar of pennies. So, you know, I just mentioned this as evidence that these same processes, you know, they don't just work in rats, they also appear to work in humans. And I think that can really help us to better understand where some of these sexual interests might come from that might strike people as, well, that, how did that happen? Well, you know, it's actually basic psychological principles that can explain that. Yep, that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, if, if you think about it, we are a very tautological species. That is, we, you know, we love to have an external uh, cause of our internal state. And we will always do that. We do that with sex. I mean, when do we say, oh, thank you, body, for my own orgasm and my own pleasure? Wow. That's like the most narcissistic thing you could imagine. <laughs> Instead, we say, oh, you make me feel so good, right? But really, it's your own nervous system that made you feel good mm -hmm. with the proper stimulation and, you know, the proper level of arousal and whatnot. So, 
it's like we're our brains are, are designed for this i think because i mean they have to be or we would always be putting our foot in the fire and going oh why did that hurt you know and never learning that oh that thing means eh, don't put your foot in it. yeah yeah so i'm curious in, in talking about all of this, do you think that some people might be more predisposed to, to developing fetishes than others? And if so, what accounts for that? I mean, I know you talked about how there might be a sex difference where men might be more susceptible to this than women. But what do we know about, you know, who is maybe more likely to develop fetishes than, than others? And are there genetic factors at play here? Well, unfortunately, we know very little. Right, because people really haven't gone into the kink community or BDSM community and 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 studied them. Right, I mean, just as a as a focused group, and of course, because kink is so not you know completely standardized, it's hard to do that. Now, you, I mean, in your book, I love it because you actually asked them about their first experiences, right? And so you, you can see the way that kind of diversity would evolve in somebody's own sexual experience, right? What I think is important, though, is that arousal is a key factor, right? I mean, Kim Wallen talks about this sometimes in work that he's done, where he believes that, well, sexual pleasure is important and orgasm is important, but arousal is, is a key factor. Orgasms that ride on high arousal are just going to be more pleasurable. You know, but again, very much like, you know, you, you, know, you don't eat anything on your birthday because you know everybody's going to take you out to your favorite restaurant so you can have your favorite food. So instead of you know, diluting that with lunch, you forego lunch. And now you're going to get this, this meal that's just the best meal ever. And, you know, it's that first bite is going to mm, just taste so good because you come to anticipate it with such high level of arousal. So one of the key factors here is what if there is diversity in arousal, which of course we know there is, right? I mean, you know, you can't be an airline pilot and freak out every time the red light comes on, right? That's yep. not going to work, right? So it's like, in order, you know, but then the engine is gone. And as well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be on the ground in a few minutes. I mean, how do you maintain that, like, uh, complete control over what for me would have been like, oh, my God, we're going to crash. So it's like, <laughs> how does that work? Well, we have different, we have just as there's diversity in everything else, there's diversity in arousability. Right. And Frank Beach had a student, Richard Whalen, who actually wrote a whole series of papers on arousability. And these are things that are not so well cited in our literature, but but they're very, very like intriguing to think about papers where the idea is, well, OK, somebody with low arousability may require more physical stimulation in order to achieve the same level of arousal as somebody who has very high arousability. And now. Economists have studied this in terms of risk averse versus risk taking individuals. Those who are risk taking, you know, have dopamine systems that are that are what? Well, interestingly, when they're taking the risk, the systems come online. But when they're not, the systems are actually very hard to arouse. So risk takers are people who have very sensitized dopamine when they're in the in when they're taking a risk. But risk-averse people, it's like a little teeny mini bit of risk. It's like, okay, okay, that's enough. I can't spend all my money on this. I got to save money because, you know, something bad might happen. Whereas the other ones are like, yeah, spend it all. You know, bet bet the whole thing. Let's go. And so it's, it's, it's intriguing to me that the way the system might ramp up, that's something that people learn and they deal with when they're young. So, you know, yeah, they don't feel the same as other people. Other people seem to be okay with this much, but you need this much in order to feel like you're even barely human. So what is that, you know? And that relates to how people have orgasms. So, for example, if the, you know, inhibitory systems like serotonin, for example, are overactivated because you've got, you know, too much executive function and you're kind of, you know, you want to get there, you, you're getting close, you kind of, it's going to, oh, it's, and then it goes away, right? And if you're that kind of a person and you're with somebody who's rough, you know, who spanks you or pinches you or pinches your nipples or pulls your hair or something of that nature, well, now you're tipping the balance toward, right? Not toward parasympathetic maintenance of blood in the genitals, but toward sympathetic arousal, which is going to open that up produce an orgasm and have blood move back to the core. Well, holy toot, right? What do you learn? 
somebody whacks your butt, somebody pulls your hair, somebody you know tries to squeeze your neck, oh, you let go. Because now the arousal, boom, has hit that threshold for an orgasm to, to occur. And now you learn something. Yeah, I like to be spanked, right? Not I, I need to be spanked. Because that's really kind of what's happening at the level of your spinal cord. But no, your conscious awareness is, oh my God, that was amazing. I like to be spanked. I like to have my hair pulled. I like to suck on toes. I like to, because it's going to produce that change in arousal. So there may be some temperamental variables here that are at play that define individuals who are more likely to gravitate toward BDSM, gravitate toward kink, gravitate toward role-playing, gravitate toward whatever it is to ride that arousal level up, right? And those who don't, okay, fine, right? I mean, you know, you're fine having vanilla sex once a week with your partner. Life is great because you got together with somebody who feels the same way. But if you get together with somebody who's like, hmm, what about a threesome? Could we maybe do a threesome? Like threesomes would be nice. Like maybe we could think about it. Like you, you might like it. Uh, how about that? You know, well, then you've got a disparity. And that mm-hmm. disparity, of course, you know, is sometimes something you don't know until you're already years into it. Yeah, no, it makes so much sense. It is reminding me a lot of what we talked about on my podcast with Emily Nagoski, where we got into the dual control model of sexuality and how some people are just much more easily sexually excited. Others are more easily sexually inhibited. And, you know, I've seen this in my own research as well. You know, for people who are very easily excited, they don't need all the bells and whistles to go along with sex. You know, sex in general is just pretty exciting. But if you're somebody who has that break that just kind of gets slammed on much more easily, sometimes having that more intense stimulation can be what you need to kind of get over that, to get out of your head, to break through the distraction and and other key factors. So yeah, it totally makes sense. Well, and that can even change across the lifespan, right? I mean, you know, I think of, you know, I think of, you know, the original Sensate Focus not studies, but experiences that Masters and Johnson were giving their, you know, couples in the the original couples therapy. And so imagine you've got these people that haven't touched each other for 16 years, right? And they're living in the same house, maybe not even sleeping in the same bed anymore. They're, you know, they've reached a point where, okay, it's either divorce or we got to do something. So now they're doing something about it because they love each other. So what do they do? They spend a week of talking about their fantasies, a week of talking about sex and talk, and not just the two of them, but, you know, in a group of other couples who are doing this and and talking about, you know, fantasies that, you know, somebody's looking at going, oh, I want to have sex with him or her. I want to, I want to, that person has a fantasy, like my fantasy. Oh my God. And so they're being turned on and then they're going back to their hotel rooms, not allowed to have sex but touching one another, you know, so, you know, what does this do to your neck? Okay. We're going to spend a lot of time focusing on non-genital touching and on parts of your body that might be an erogenous zone. And, Oh, the fingernails behind my neck. Oh, it gives me chills. So you're learning about this in a, you know, in St. Louis, Missouri, okay, where you're coming from New York. So there's like a vacation sex thing happening too, but you can't do anything for two whole weeks until they finally let, you know, release the hounds, right? So now your arousal level is so high with this person that you have not felt arousal for in the last 16 years that when you release the hounds, you guys are having sex like you're 16-year-olds again. So, you know, unfortunately, you go back home and all those conditioned cues in that house that have been conditioned for 16 years to say, this is boring and I am fed up are still there. You're not in the hotel room in, in, in St. Louis anymore, right? And that's one reason why vacation sex kind of does it for pe- for some people. And it becomes like a fetish for people. They love to go on vacation so that they can have sex that actually is arousing with their partner as opposed to uh, 1130 after the evening news signs off and it's Friday night. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy, it's a mitzvah. We're happy. Life is good. Not really. I'm going to roll over and go to sleep afterwards because, you know. Ugh. So, yeah, it's it, 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 it becomes like a fetish in a way. Yeah. So you can have a kink for vacation sex. And <laughs> if your house feels like you're surrounded by all of these cues, 
for bad sex or unexciting sex, absolutely. Maybe time to move. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe that's my next study is uh, do people have better sex after they move into a new house and they erase all of the old cues? We're going to have to find out. So we have much more to discuss, including how porn might shape our sexual interests. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Want to get into the world of podcasting? If so, you need the best recording platform out there, and it's Zencaster. I've tried several programs for my own podcast, and Zencaster's quality is unparalleled. Sign up today for a free two-week trial and use my exclusive discount code, SEXANDPSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, to save 40% off their professional plan. Visit Zencaster.com to learn more. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. Our friends at Promescent have everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews and why more than 2,000 medical professionals recommend it. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at Promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T. And we're back. My guest today is sex researcher, Dr. Jim Faust. Let's talk about porn for a moment, Jim. So we've been talking about how fetishes develop, and I'm wondering how porn factors into all of this. So let's say you're watching porn and you're in this heightened state of arousal. Maybe you're on the brink of orgasm and you see something you don't typically see or something that didn't previously get you off. Maybe the camera cuts to focusing on someone's feet or on a performer's tattoo. So do you think this kind of thing can potentially expand people's sexual turn-ons through the same sorts of conditioning principles we've been talking about? I, I do, actually. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why the uh, laboratory studies of this have been, yeah, the, the effects are there. You know, you pointed out Jack Rackman's study, other studies, Letourneau, and, uh, but they're small. And one of the reasons is people aren't masturbating in the labs while they're watching porn that they may not have ever seen before, right? And that some of them may then say, wow, that was amazing. I want to see that again, right? So again, we're not, I, I don't think we're doing the right studies to actually pull this out. Not that an IRB is going to maybe even let you do these studies, right? right? Because, you know, it's like, oh, now I like Japanese porn. I'm going to sue that university because, damn it, I can't find the Japanese porn that I saw and they won't give it to me. So, you know, it's always going to be a little bit dicey. But I do think that that's possible. And I think that it's iterative through the lifespan. So I think that, you know, once you're doing kink that you know you like and that you know works and it works every time and now you're doing a lot more and maybe you're habituating because that's another temperamental variable that can happen in all animals is they you do something over and over and over and over and over again the same way every time you habituate mm-hmm. and if you habituate to kink well how kinkier must you be in order to then move to the next level and know what real aficionados know so you're going to then move up the scale and try to get kinkier and kinkier and kinkier and kinkier. And it may involve you doing things that, Oh, well, you know, if I slip my tongue, <laughs> now, I, now I have control that can go both ways on somebody's head of somebody's penis or on a clitoris or whatever it is. And that's going to be kind of cool because now I can feel that and taste that and do all the things I need to do to be that person. But if you're doing that all the time, it's going to get boring. So I, I, I do think that across the lifespan, these things happen. So when you're watching porn and you see something new, you know, or you get aroused by something that you've never been aroused by, like, you know, oh, went to the dark web and saw a woman getting off with a horse. Whoa, I've never seen that before. That's really interesting. I want to find that again. And I can't. Ah, now the arousal level goes up. And now you want to see it. You want to masturbate. And perhaps have an orgasm or ejaculate at that moment that you see these things happen. Once you do that, you're really, you know, think of a moray pattern. You're really now phasing in these two cues, the arousing cue and your internal state. Mm -hmm. And I think when that happens, people do say, wow, I'm going to kind of explore that. Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes to their detriment. And that of course is where you now move into the realm of, of illegality. Uh-huh. Right, because a lot of the stuff on the dark web is 
is nasty and people discover it and they go, whoa, you know, especially the ones who are, are so bored with regular porn that they're trying to now discover things that are more and more kinky. Uh-huh. And maybe they want to put that into practice. Maybe they don't. And if they have a partner that doesn't, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. And so as, as you're talking about this, I'm, I'm thinking about the Pavlovian conditioning we were talking about, where we're talking about sexual interests that develop through repeated pairings of these different stimuli. But you can also have what some psychologists refer to as one-shot conditioning, where you just see something once, have this one experience, and you develop that association very quickly. So, you know, sometimes this is something that develops repeatedly over time. Sometimes it's that one shot kind of thing. We may see this actually right now in many labs, you're finding the porn that people watched even 10 years ago isn't, doesn't seem to be sufficient to get a new generation of, you know, Gen Zers into the lab saying, oh, yeah, that's really arousing, right? So we're showing people porn. Um, uh, Eric Jensen did a study where he looked at a bunch of different porns, you know, porn sequences. Some were female-centric, some were male, quote-unquote, male-centric. Funny, though, that females like to look at that which is male-centric, which is really hilarious. Mm -hmm. And men are kind of looking at the face going, I'm suspending disbelief, I swear. But it's interesting that those porns and the ratings that were given People don't give those ratings anymore. So Mm -hmm. something that was a 10 in 2003 is now kind of, you know, maybe a four, right? So, so we've moved into this weird realm and I think you you can even kind of pan out and say, okay, people that watch porn in the seventies, maybe they are, you know, die in the wool yes, women must have pubic hair and men must be hairy and, you know, cum shots have to occur at the end of this sequence of dialogue that actually means something as opposed to, oh, you're the pizza boy, you look cute. And so then people who saw porn in the 80s and 90s of, you know, completely shaved bodies and blonde people, they have a certain perspective on that. And the ones who see it in the early 2000s are the ones who are seeing it now. So there seems to be a difference in what gets people off. And I find that very interesting from an arousal standpoint. And it's something that we haven't studied all that much in, in our sex research and sex research colleagues. That is fascinating. And I guess I hadn't thought about that or wasn't aware of <laughs> those differences in ratings that were happening. But it's making me wonder, is it specific to the sexual acts that are taking place? Or is it related to, you know, the the performers just kind of like have outdated haircuts or whatever, like, or changes in body type over time. And, you know, what is now culturally desired, you know, because we know that that shifts and changes and ebbs and flows as well. You know, what was considered attractive in the 80s was different in the 90s and early 2000s. Like, so I I think there's lots of variables there that would be worth exploring, but absolutely. And so I don't know exactly how you do the study that allows us to tease apart all of those different possibilities, but I'm fascinated and curious now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I wonder what would happen if we gave people 70s porn to look at again, where there's not only a plot and you got to wait, like to see stuff. Would people just like fast forward, mm-hmm. or would they actually go, "Whoa, a plot? What? <laughs> you know, I'm waiting for this. Oh, there's a denouement at the end of this. You know, you think of uh, I don't know the opening of Misty Beethoven, my favorite porn of all time, right? But there's a denouement at the end where you know she now is sitting in the the royal throne and holding her former teacher in a dog collar, right? In a studded dog collar while she's directing everybody else to learn the kind of sex secrets that she, that she has learned. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a, it's a beautifully empowering movie, but you know, you got to wait, you don't just see what you want to see when you say, you know, you can't just fast forward and there's not the, you know, two minutes of blowjobs, two minutes of cunnilingus, two minutes of, you know, fucking in this position, two minutes of that position, two minutes of something, you know, and then finally the cum shot. It's like, it's not formulaic, which is very interesting. So it makes me wonder how people might actually think sitting through something like that and what they might feel about that. Yeah. And, you know, the evolution of porn itself is so fascinating. You know, for example, I, I talked about this a lot in my human sexuality course, where, you know, back in, say, the early 1900s, when, you know, people didn't have 
computers and you didn't have access to video porn, you know, it was a luxury for people to have some type of video setup where they could watch an adult film. And so porn actually back then used to be like this shared social experience. Men would get together for these stag parties where they'd all like stand around and, and watch porn together, right? And so porn used to be this very social thing. And, you know, today it's a very solitary activity for the most part. So that's one of the changes. But if you look at the types of videos that have been released, like for example, Deep Throat, you know, the first <laughs> adult picture with, you know, an X rating released for wide theatrical consumption in the 70s, you know, it's it's a movie with a plot, but also has the the sex in it. And it was enormously popular, you know, played for years and was one of the most profitable movies of all time, whether it was erotic or not. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's fascinating. And you look at some of the other movies from that era, like Behind the Green Door and like all of these movies, mm -hmm. like they're actually some of them are funny. <laughs> some of them are like really fascinating. Some of them are like really dark. And so, yeah, that, that whole thing, analyzing the history of porn is just endlessly fascinating. Well, and another thing that's happened, of course, is now with, you know, internet-based porn availability, women are downloading porn and masturbating to porn just like men have. But women never went in the 70s and 80s to porn shops to buy porn because that was just not done, right? And the ones that did, you know, had a, an S term associated with them. Um, so it, it, it just, you know, you didn't do it unless you were sexually liberated enough to be able to actually go and do that and endure the slut shaming that might happen to you. Now women can do it just like men do. And women are masturbating to it just like men have. And many of these women come to labs. I mean, my, my, my former lab at Concordia, I one time had, I mean, I was showing them clip video clips and the women were doing this at different, different phases of their cycle. And we, we wanted to look at, you know, saccade time and whatnot, dwell time on particular aspects of the film. Well, lo and behold, one woman came with her boyfriend. I'll never forget this. And halfway through, he wanted out. Because, oh my God, you know, he's looking at porn and his girlfriend's in the other room looking at the same porn and she doesn't want out. She's actually quite happy doing this, but he's freaked out that she's going to know that he was looking at porn. And I thought, mm -hmm. okay, first off, that's weird because 10 years earlier, you know, we couldn't get a woman if you paid them to look at this, but guys would come out of the woodwork going, what, 50 bucks to watch porn? Ah, I'm in, <laughs> right? And now the women are coming out of the woodwork and the guys are all freaked out. And I'm like going, what, what has gone on? And I've talked to people like Marta Viana and others who are saying, yeah, we're getting, we can't get men into our labs to watch porn when we used to be able to get men without any problem. So attitudes are changing and women's experiences are changing. Yeah. Such that now it's, you know, we, we've had this whole idea, oh, women just respond, you know, to everything. They're, you know, they're, they're multifaceted focus and they need to not just see it, but they need to hear it and they need to touch it. And he said, men just want to see it with the sound on or off. We don't care. Well, it turns out, yeah, men do care. And women can look at porn just like men do without any difference. Mm -hmm. So I find that very intriguing now that we're in this very different era, I think. Yeah, and you, you can't even pay men to watch porn. Like, where are we? <laughs> That's something that I'm sure a lot of people never would have expected to hear. No. One more quick question about porn, because you've done some work looking at porn and its relation to erectile functioning. You know, there's a lot of people who talk about porn causing erectile dysfunction, like where people become totally desensitized to it. And so they can only get aroused if there's porn and not with a partner. But in some of the work that you've done, it challenges that idea. So can you tell us a little bit about what your thoughts are on just kind of how porn affects erectile function? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, you got, there are two ways to approach this. One is kind of the input, the other is the output. If you're doing the same thing every time, you're looking at the same kind of porn every time, you will get bored with that, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that you're somehow inching your way toward erectile dysfunction. What inches men toward erectile dysfunction is this notion that they are, you know, having almost an obsessive 
compulsion about masturbation, mm-hmm. right? So, oh, I got to crank, you know, if I crank off four ejaculations today, I'll, I'll, I'll be good. You know, it's almost like the chronic obligatory runners who I must do 70K or I will get fat. Right. So it's like, okay, so I already do 70 K. Oh, I only did 69 K today. Uh oh, I'm getting fat. It's like, so there seems to be, you know, it's not simply downloading porn, using it as an adjunct to arousal, masturbating, looking at it, getting off, whatever it might be. Here you've got individuals who might be a little bit OCD. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of chronic masturbators. And of course, you know, the, the anti-masturbation campaigns do nothing but make that happen more in these guys because they're thinking about it all the time. Don't you do it. Don't you masturbate. Don't you fap. You fapper. You bad person. You, oh, my God. Well, you know, tell us not to do something, and <laughs> we want to do it more. So these guys are kind of masturbating every day and putting themselves in, to some extent, a chronic refractory period. Mm. right lay off your dick for 24 hours or 48 hours in fact make make them want it more but not do it and all of a sudden their erectile function is back right even just 24 hours is probably sufficient for that so again you got this habit kind of thing happening where you're doing the same thing every time and you're doing it on a daily basis now you're more refractory and you're bored right so it's almost like having sex with a real partner might actually be something that unbores you because, oh, my God, now it's real, assuming you have the social skills to be able to do that, mm-hmm. right? Which, you know, some of the incels probably don't. That's why they're sitting in front of, you know, a computer screen masturbating all day, right? So it's a, it's a weird kind of thing. You really have to get them out of that mindset. But their erections are fine. And, in fact, if you bring people into a lab and have them, have them view porn – they actually will begin to sensitize to that and their erections will come faster. Nikki Prousey found that their erections are going to come faster and even get harder. Right. If you give them different porn, right. Yeah. There was actually a study done in the eighties, forgetting the name of the woman that did this, but she brought men into a lab, men and women, and she had them watch. She said, well, we're going to watch different kind of porn sequences, blah, blah, blah. That was all sleight of hand. They're going to, they had two porn sequences that were very similar. And she had them watch the same one for four days straight, okay? And she didn't take, uh, you know, plethysmography or anything like that. She just took their ratings of the... And you might imagine, day one, men were at a 10, women were at like a four, okay? Then day two, everybody went down. Day four, everybody's down at zero. And then she switched the films, right? So now they came in, they're like, oh, yeah, it's Friday. Ugh, going to watch the same thing again. La, la, la. Their expect- expectancy was that. And then now see something different. All of a sudden, both men and women were at a 10. Mm-hmm. Now, what was interesting about was the women, right? Because they started out at like 50, 40, 50%. And now they're at 100. Like, what is this? Well, it's disinhibition, really. It's like, you know, you're already in a group of 10 people, you know, everybody knows you're watching porn and you're a woman and you're a man. And it doesn't matter. You're watching it. It's the same thing. Your expectancy is ugh, it's going to be bad. And now something changes. So I think that gets you at this notion. If you can switch it up, not do it every day, do something else. Oh, I feel like masturbating today, but you know what? I'm going to wait till tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Or you know what? I'm going to wait till I have sex with my partner. Or you know what? I'm going to like maybe have a porn role play with my partner oh now you can incorporate it without him to say oh porn is bad if you look at porn you're going to get erectile dysfunction because you have p-i-e-d porn induced erectile dysfunction no you want to get rid of p-i-e-d lay off your dick for 48 hours mm-hmm. it's all about the variety <laughs> so <laughs> exactly exactly that's exactly right Well, there was so much more I wanted to get into with you, Jim, because you've done fascinating research on sexual difficulties and what happens inside the brain of people who have sexual desire disorders. But I think I'm going to have to have you back another time to talk about that because there's just so much to discuss with you. Would you come back sometime and and chat with us more? Absolutely. Absolutely, Justin. I I really appreciate it. It's it's so great to talk to you one-on-one. It really is. Well, this was an amazing conversation. I really appreciate having you here, you taking the time, and I can't wait to have you come back and continue the conversation. 
Thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, which was made on Zencaster, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lay Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, in which I cite a lot of Jim's research and talk more about the science of sexual fetishes, kinks, and fantasies. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.